Welcome to the Vintage Church Podcast. Vintage Church is a movement of truth, love, and community. For more information, visit VintageChurchNola.com. Here is this week's message. Good morning, Vintage Church. It is a joy to be with you today. First off, let me get a few things straight. Uh, I'm humbled by the the introduction by Pastor Dustin. Love him dearly, but uh, you can call me Bo or hey you, that guy. Um, I've always just been Pastor Bo, and so my wife and my beautiful children are here today, and they don't know me as Dr. Rice, so I'm just daddy and husband and Bo. So um, that's what you do need to know about me. Uh, I, I do, first off, I just want to say I'm, I'm an adopted child of God. I have been born again by my Heavenly Father. Uh, I married my beautiful middle school sweetheart. We did wait till after middle school. We didn't get married till after college. Uh, but her name is Rebecca. She's here. Uh, we have been blessed with four beautiful children. Three are in here. One's in the back. And even though he's way back there, if you listen, you'll probably be able to hear him soon enough. Uh, he is he is a lively two-year-old. And um, and so we I, I'm just I'm I'm blessed to be here. Uh, we are we are blessed to be in the city of New Orleans. I'll tell you this uh, as a faculty member at, uh, at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I've always loved and admired the work of Vintage Church. I have known uh, I've known your pastors for a very long time. Pastor Rob, I know I'm just encouraged by what you guys are doing, sending him out to plant. But I knew I knew Rob way before Vintage, and uh, just a dear friend. Uh, I've, I've known Pastor Dustin now for a long time, getting to know Brick and others very well. And I just uh, I, and let me just say, as again, as a faculty member at the seminary, we we love coming alongside churches like you, not only to equip pastors to answer the call to ministry, but we love just partnering with churches because we love this city as well. And so we appreciate being partners of the ministry of the gospel here in the city, reaching the neighborhoods, New Orleans. And reaching to the nations. And so just, uh, just want to bring greetings from New Orleans Seminary. If you will take your copy of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This morning we're going to be kicking off a new study on Discover. Discover what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. If you do need a copy of God's Word and they're handing some out now, just raise your hand. Thank you so much for these servants who are doing that. But Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. We're going to consider this morning what it means to live united. What does it really mean to live united? And that's not just a catchphrase. That's not just a slogan by the United Way. Live united is actually a call of God on the body of Christ. You know, when someone joins any type of organization, he or she obligates themselves to live their life according to oftentimes a certain standard, whatever the standard of that group might be. For example, whenever I joined New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, I actually signed a document that as I taught, I would teach according to the Baptist faith and message and according to the articles of religious belief of the seminary. In order to be a faculty member, I knew God had called me there, but coming there, we had to make an agreement that when I teach in the classroom, I would teach according to a certain standard, a certain doctrinal belief. And I was good with that because I agree with that doctrinal belief. 
When someone becomes a citizen of the United States of America, someone who's born in another country, yet they come here, they go through a class, you have to apply for citizenship, you take different courses, and, and then at the end, as you you've take a test, once you pass that test, you take an oath. You take an oath in order to become a citizen of the United States of America. Part of that oath, you literally, you pledge allegiance, not only to the flag, but to the country. You pledge allegiance to, to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States and to uphold all of its laws. There's always been this idea of when you join an organization that you uphold a certain standard to be a part of the body. Did you know this is the same way with the church? Now, again, but before, before you throw stones at me, hear me. I understand that salvation is free. We're on the same page there. Paul tells us very clearly that salvation is a gift from God, right? It is a gift of God from, from in our faith, but it's by God's grace, not of good works, so that no one may boast. Salvation in and of itself is a free gift of God. We've done nothing to earn it. It is something that God freely gives to us. But did you know, once we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we may not be saved by our good works, but Scripture's clear. We're saved in order to do good works. There's a standard. There's an obligation you and I are, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ, we're the recipients of, of some amazing benefits. In the book of Ephesians, what Paul does in the first three chapters, he kind of lays out what the benefits are of being a part of the body of Christ. Now, we don't have time to study all three chapters this morning, the first three chapters. But, but if you'll just bear with me for a second, let me tell you what he does. What, what he does is, is he talks about, again, the benefits, the glories, the, the, all that we receive of being, the honors, the privileges of being an adopted child of God. Here's what he says in the first three chapters. If you're taking notes, this is basically what he it says, us, we as believers, those who've trusted in Jesus, as believers in Christ, we're showered with God's kindness. We're chosen by Him. We're marked with the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit's power. We're freed from sins, from sins cursed, and we're freed from sins bondage, and we're brought near to God. If you take the time to read the first three chapters, what Paul is doing is he's laying out these doctrinal beliefs, these doctrinal truths of who we are now that we've been adopted into the body of Christ. In chapter 4, there is a distinct pivot. He moves from talking about doctrine and our understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And he moves now to an understanding of the duty, the obligation that we have because we're a member of the body of Christ. That's what he does. So in Ephesians 1 through 3, he talks about doctrine and all of our benefits. And then in Ephesians 4, to the end of the chapter, he talks about the duty, the obligation we have now as a being part of the body of Christ. So I invite you to pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 1, as this morning we consider where we begin in all, what do we do, uh, how we as believers can live united. Ephesians 4 verse 1, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving Father, I ask right now, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, you would open up our minds to the truth of your word. Lord, first off, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't understand what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, those who may be, Lord, who are here this morning who are still struggling, have never trusted in you as Savior and not allowing you to be Lord of their lives, Lord, I pray that this morning they would hear the truth and the hope of the gospel. That, Lord Jesus, you died for their sins. That they would just trust in you, Lord. You would give them all the hope that they need. Lord, for the rest of us, those who are here this morning who have already trusted you, Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand the the awesome privilege we have. Not not just a duty, not, not just an obligation, but the privilege, Lord, that we have to live our lives for your glory. Lord, I pray you would remind us of what it means to be united as one body. Lord, I ask that as... As Vintage Church begins this study on discovering that, Lord, you would help each one that's here, Lord, to, to understand, to discover, discover their purpose, Lord, to discover the gifts that you have uniquely bestowed upon them, Lord, so they could use them for, for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, I pray that Vintage Church would be a united body of Christ, is committed to do whatever it takes to lay aside their own selves and their own desires that Lord this would be a unified body focused on one purpose reaching the lost evangelizing the lost and edifying building up the body the church Lord speak to our hearts challenge us now may we be a people who live united I ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior and Lord amen So again, I remind you what Paul does is he goes from the doctrines of the truth of the faith, understanding how we have been impacted by by God's grace, and now he shifts gears and he says, now here's your responsibility. Here's your duty. I like to say it this way. Here's our privilege. This is how we get to participate in God's movement in his own kingdom. How do we do it? Well, he tells us by living united. Here's the challenge. You and I, we're called to live united, but how? Well, really, there's two ways, two truths that we're going to focus on this morning. The first one, you'll see on the screen. In order for us to be able to live united, we are called to live united through divine calling. You and I are called to live united through divine calling. Where does he say it? Pick it back up in verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Pause right there for a moment. What Paul does here is he helps us to understand. He says, look, first off, as believers, you need to understand that your life, because you've trusted in Jesus, should look radically different now. This phrase, this walk in a manner, it actually appears several more times in the book of of Ephesians. It's really kind of Paul's catchphrase. But what he's saying here basically is, as you're living your life, 
just walking and some as, as you go about your daily life, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, in all things, church, in all things and in all times, in all that you think, all that you say, and all that you do, do it in a way that's worthy of the manner of which you've been called. Well, what is that call? Again, Paul in the previous chapters has talked about how we're called into the body of Christ. We're called into the family of God. We are adopted into God's family. We didn't choose God. God first chose us. And he says, now that you're mine, I love you enough that I don't want to keep you. This. I, I, I love you enough that I'm going to radically change you. And so as believers, our understanding needs to be this. In order to, to prove to the world that we are a child of God, we have this responsibility, this privilege of living our lives in such a way that when the world looks at us, they see something radically different about us. Paul says, as you're living out your life, you need to look radically different. And where do we begin? Well, in the context here, Paul says we begin in the church. We oftentimes think about how we as believers, we're called to reach out to a lost world. Yes, we are, and we should. But in the context here, Paul is actually talking to the body of Christ. He's saying, and, and you know, if you really want to prove that you're one of my children, if you really, if God said, if you really want to prove that you're a follower of me, Christ says, through Paul, then, then you need to begin by being united in the body. Begin right here. The light that shines the brightest at home is the light that will shine the furthest away. The world will see how you're radically different by seeing how you're united as one. You see what Paul says here very clearly is that we have a huge responsibility to check our own attitudes. And our attitudes towards fellow believers is really important. Well, what Paul does now is he actually kind of breaks up this text for us, really showing us, he lists five virtues that should mark our walk. It says, in order to show how you're united, how you're a member of the body of Christ, you need to live your life as you're walking, worthy of your calling. You need to make sure you're doing some things to show the world how you're radically different. Well, where do we begin? Well, Paul lists these five virtues that I think is important for us to understand. In order for us to be a truly united people, we must first of all, Paul says, be humble. Be humble. Now, when you hear the word humble, what do you think of? What do you think of humility? What, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Anybody? I, I said this earlier. I'm a professor at the seminary, so this is the audience participation part. Placing others before yourself. I think I saw a hand back there selflessness that's great both of those I, I, whenever i saw that I, I was looking just for some definitions of humility one of the ones i found i love listen to it because you both hit on it humility is this selfless people living for the good of others when we talk about humility we're talking about selfless people who live for the good of others and hear me church what paul says is in order to be unified for the purpose of bringing god glory and all that we think, all that we say, and all that we do in the body of Christ, we must first off be humble. It's interesting. In Paul's day, humility was not, was not something that was admired by the world. In fact, it was pride that was most admired. Christians who tried to live their lives according to God's word, who lived humble lives, often were ridiculed for their humility. In fact, many were killed. Because they looked so different from the world, there was something that was, that was strange about them that they, they lost their lives because they were a humble people. 
That was Paul's day. Let's be honest. Let's think about our day for a moment. Is there much difference in this Western world, in this Western society? I don't know that any of us will ever lose our, lose our lives if we're living out humility. In fact, I will say that in the world's eyes, a false sense of humility is honored at times. But it's not true humility. It's, it's, not, it's not a selfless humility. It's not a selfless people who are living for the good of others. You see, we live in a world that says, think of yourself first, right? If you want it, go get it. You, you do what you want to do. And we even have a hamburger company that says, have it your way. Right? It's, it's all about you. It's all about me. It's, it's myself. It's I. That's the world in which we live. It, it's pride first. Well, what Paul tells us here, in order to be a people who are united together to live our lives for the glory of God, we must first and foremost be a humble people, a selfless people living for the benefit of others. Paul goes on to say, not only should we be a people who are marked by humility, but we should be a people who are marked by gentleness. By gentleness, the word there or, or literally is a, a meekness. Now, um, you probably have heard it before. Sometimes people have said meekness is what? Meekness is weakness, right? If, if, if we're gentle, it is perceived oftentimes in the world that meekness is weakness. Well, that's not the case. You see, this, this gentleness, this, uh, as the scripture literally says here, this meekness, meekness is not weakness. But actually what scripture, what we see in life of, of what the scripture teaches, meekness is strength under control. You see, whenever you and I are adopted in the family of God, we're given special gifts. We're given, we're given abilities. We're given talents to be used for the building up of the church, for, for, for glorifying God, right? And, and that's God's purpose. That's God's plan. He does that for each one of us. He gives us these gifts. He gives us these abilities to be used for His glory. He doesn't give us our strengths to sit on the sidelines and do nothing, he gives us our strengths not to be a weakness, but he gives us our strengths to be used in meekness. The word meekness has an idea of strength being used under control. You see, whenever we're called in the body of Christ, we're given these gifts, these unique talents, whatever the case may be, and, and, we're, and we're encouraged to use them, but use them not to bring glory to ourselves. We use them in the end to bring glory to God and to edify the church. You see, we as believers are called to be gentle. Not weak, but meek. Use our God-given gifts and our talents in a self-controlled manner to bring glory to Him and Him alone. Next, Paul says that we're to be a people who exhibit patience. Now, I probably I don't have to say a whole lot here, right? When it comes to our own times, our own agendas, when it comes to our busy lives, um, patience is... Definitely a virtue, but I'm going to just say, I'll just, let me speak for myself. It's, a, it's, a, it's one that I still struggle with, right? My, I, I thought I might hear, might hear my wife say amen there. <clears throat> we have four children. We've been blessed by God with four wonderful, beautiful children. If you have children, your patience has probably been tested a time or two. We recently adopted our fourth child, um, we received, we fostered him for quite a while. He became, officially became a rice in January. And, um, 
he, he's, a, he's a beautiful little boy, two years old, and um, we got him, was about six months old, but um, he just he, born here in the city, uh, unfortunately, drug exposure in the womb, a lot of, lot of issues that he's had, but uh, God has been gracious and has brought him through, I mean, just, you'll see him in a little while, just absolutely gorgeous little boy, but um, let's just say, because of some of the issues he had in the womb in vitro, Anybody had a two-year-old? Well, put, put a two-year-old on, literally, on crack and, and some other things that, I mean, things he's been exposed to. I mean, he's like, he's, he's a two-year-old on a whole other level. We absolutely love our son. He is God's gift to us. Well, sometimes he can try our patience. Hear me, that's, this is what Paul's saying here. He's not talking about just in the family and our children and the relationship between our spouse. He's talking about the church. You know, sometimes that person who's made a commitment to work with you to do, maybe to help in the nursery, they're, they're late. Oh, mercy. Start getting impatient, don't we? I, I'll be careful. I won't try to stomp on too many toes here. Here, here this is what Paul says. You've experienced the patience of God. You've experienced the loving and merciful, gracious patience of God. As believers, we're called to share that with, with others. So as believers, we're called to exhibit patience. Next, Paul says, in order to be a unified people, according to the call that God has placed in our life, we're to be a people who are accepting, who are accepting. Where does he say it? Well, look there again in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This word for bearing literally means, again, it's actually it's a similar words, to be patient with. But it means to accept. Basically, what Paul is saying here is that we're, we're to put up with each other. We're to accept each other. In our differences, in our uniqueness, in, in our individual callings. And, and again, sometimes, I mean, we're humans and we just rub each other the wrong way. But, but what Paul says, in order, in order to bring glory to God, we're, we're to be accepting of each other. This is God's design. This is his purpose. This is God's will. Bringing us together in our uniqueness. We're to be accepting of each other. Finally, what he says here is that we're to be a people who are zealous who are zealous. Again, there in verse, um, well, actually in verse 3, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to, to be zealous. Literally, the word there is zealous, to making every effort to, to be eager. But we're to be zealous. We're to be eager to what? Notice what he says there? To maintain the bond of peace, the unity, some sort of, the unity of peace. It's interesting. Let me make sure we're all on the same page here. As believers in the church, none of us are called to create unity. We can't do it. It's not our job. The Holy Spirit was actually given to the church. One of his primary roles was to be the one who brings unity into the body of Christ. However, we as believers now are called to maintain that unity. We, we can't create it, but the Holy Spirit's done that. Whenever you trusted in Jesus, He gave you unity. He brought you in, baptized you, literally baptized you into one body for the purpose of being the full body of Christ. With, uh, so Christ being the head, that we might continue to grow up in a way that, that brings glory to, to our bridegroom. That, that's the picture of what the Holy Spirit has done. He did that in you the moment that you trusted in Jesus. He creates the unity. 
But as believers, we're called to maintain it. Now, keep your hand here in, in Ephesians 4 and go with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13. You'll see it on the screen as well. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Probably many of you, my wife and I, we had it read at our wedding. I've, I've preached many weddings, and I've read 1 Corinthians 13. Nothing wrong with that. I think it is a beautiful picture of, of what love should be, and we can obviously make application of what love between a man and a woman should be. But in its context, 1 Corinthians 13 is actually talking about the love of the body of Christ. If you want to get very literal, which we should, this is the kind of love that we should share as the body of Christ with each other. Right in the middle of this context, talking about in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. Paul, right at the church at Corinth, you've been given spiritual gifts. He goes on to talk about how we're all one body with many members. He comes down to, to chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So wait a minute. All that other stuff sounds pretty cool. What do you mean if I could do all that but I don't have, I have nothing? Verse 3, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, have not love, I gain nothing. Now hear me, church. Hear Paul. Writing to the body of Christ. Writing to us. Not, not just to husbands and wives in here. Talking about every one of us here as the body. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Talk about the love in the church. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we are in a mirror, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Think about that love and go back to Ephesians 4. You see, it's attitudes of humility. Attitudes of gentleness, attitudes of patience, attitudes of acceptance, attitudes of zealousness for unity. It is, it is these attitudes that, that actually helps us to foster unity in the body of Christ. You and I, we've been saved by the amazing grace of God, wonderful doctrinal truths. So what? What do we do with it now? Paul says, be a unified body. Live your lives in such a way that when the world sees it, they see you living out your divine calling. It doesn't stop there. Not only are we called to live united through divine calling, he goes on to say that we're called to live united in theological oneness. Live united in theological oneness. Now, I need you to buckle up here, okay? Because there's a lot of doctrinal truth 
Paul actually doesn't get away from the doctrine. He shows us how doctrine and duty are still intertwined. But he does it here by really helping us see how as being adopted in the family of God, we all have these certain foundational truths that we believe in. This, this is what we, that we see are the, he says, really ultimately, the seven essential elements of unity. What are they? First off, he says that we're called to be one body. One body. Now, verses 4 through 6, let's look at it. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We're called first here to be one body. If you're taking notes, just write this down. When we talk about one body, basically what Paul is saying here is we are one in Christ's church. You know, when you look at the body of Christ, it, there's beautiful diversity in the body of Christ. We, we think about our backgrounds. We, we think about our giftings, which you're going to talk about over the next few weeks. Every one of you, when you trusted in Jesus, not only did you receive the presence of Christ in your life through, through the Holy Spirit, but at that very moment, you also received one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to gift you with at least one spiritual gift. So every one of us here has at least one spiritual gift. That came to us the moment that we trust in Christ. And, and, and we think about all the diversity of our gifts, all the diversity of our background. It is a beautiful picture of what Christ's bride is and should be. We think, about, we think about how God has united all these things together. He has designed it. It is his will. He, he is the one in his great wisdom. He brought a diverse people, diverse background, diverse settings. He brought us together ultimately to be a people who are bringing about his perfect will. So when the body of Christ is divided, hear me, we're actually limiting the impact that the church can have for the glory of God. When, when we allow division to come into the body, and we're no longer a one body unified under one mission, one purpose, one vision, then we, we not God, not, not the Holy Spirit, He's still all powerful, He's still all God, right? We're the ones who are limiting the impact that the church can have for God's glory. We need to be reminded that we are called to be one body. Next, we see that we're, one, we're called to be together in one spirit. Again, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. We are one in the Holy Spirit's work. Now, this is just a reference back to verse 3. I don't have to spend a lot of time here. But again, it's, just, uh, it's Paul's way of reminding us. We didn't create unity. We cannot create unity. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But you and I, being one in spirit, are called together to maintain that unity. Even though we're responsible for maintaining it, the strength still comes from the Holy Spirit. We got all that we need. We got everything that we need to live a unified life for the glory of God as a church. We must stay tapped in to the power of the Holy Spirit. Next, he says that we have one hope. We have one hope. Again, if you're taking notes, we are one in the hope of Christ. Keep your hand there in, in chapter 4. Go back to chapter 2. Just back up. In Ephesians chapter 2, this is not on the screen. I figure you might just real quick turn one or two pages over. Begin reading in verse 11. Ephesians 2 verse 11 says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. 
So what, here he's explaining it. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having, listen to what he says, having no hope and without God in the world. Says all you Gentiles, at one point, you had absolutely no hope. Because you didn't experience, you didn't have an, an, a, re, a realistic experience with God's covenant with his people. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Church, come in here real close for a second, okay? What's Paul saying? You and I, we got hope now. We got all the hope that we need because our hope comes through Christ and and him alone. When you and I, when we trust in Jesus Christ, we're united together in one hope. One hope found in Christ. Hear me. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior Lord, today's the day. Because as, as Paul wrote here in Ephesians 2, without Christ there is no hope. There, there is no hope. I just need to be brutally honest for a moment. Without Christ, there is absolutely no hope. But there's an answer to the no hope. It is Jesus. It is, it is his life. It is his death. It is his burial. It is his resurrection. It is his ascension to the right hand of the Father, knowing that he's coming again one day. That's the gospel. Hear me. If you've never trusted in Jesus, there's hope for you. It's placing your faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. For those in here who've already done that, we need to be reminded again and again and again that we're united in that one hope. That one hope then leads us to this next truth, that we serve this one Lord. One hope through Christ. Why? Because he is our one Lord. Again, you won't see it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 4 5 says, For we do not preach ourselves, But Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves, for your sake, we find ourselves to be servants of Christ. The scripture says there, Paul ran to the church at Corinth saying, look, we we, we don't preach ourselves. But we simply proclaim Jesus Christ and and him as Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. We're we're not making a name for ourselves. We're not doing these things to bring bring attention to ourselves. We we find ourselves just proclaiming that Jesus Christ and him alone is Lord. Church, we need to be reminded that that we are united together under one spirit, under one hope, under one Lord. And all this leads us then to the next truth. We're, We're united in one faith. One faith. You see here, one faith. It says, we're, really, ultimately, we're, we're one in essential truths. You see there in this text, says, so, that, so that, or excuse me, but chapter 4. Um, we see here in this text, it says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called, the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. All of this leading to this truth. You see, the faith here that we're talking about is really just the essential truths of the gospel. Um, understand that we're united under the, the, the sole truth of what the gospel is. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, and that's what we all must agree on. And, and in Paul's letter here, he's writing, he is reminding his church that that's, that's who we are as a body of Christ. It's interesting that oftentimes it is the secondary issues of Christianity that divides the church. Issues that ultimately 
don't determine whether or not we're truly saved. They're, they're, they're not issues that necessarily relate directly to the gospel. Now, some would argue they have some, some bearing upon it. Here's one. Some of you in here say, uh, I'm, I don't believe in any of the points of Reformed theology. I'm a zero-pointer. Others say, I'm a, I'm a five-pointer. In fact, I'm so hyper, I'm, I'm a seven and an eight. Hear me. If you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, that's fine. Secondary issue. Secondary issue. But I can point to churches right now that have been divided, have been split because of that very issue. We're about to talk about one here in a second. Baptism. And our understanding of baptism. There have been churches that have split in our understanding of of baptism. Hear me. Secondary issue. What's most important is the truth of the gospel. And Paul says, we as believers, we're united together in one faith because we have this one spirit who brings us one hope and our one Lord. And it leads us to have one faith. Then it leads us to that next one I just mentioned, one baptism. One baptism. It says, we are one in baptism in Christ. Now, hear me, out of all of these, is there another one that could be any more controversial um, than this one? Because there have been churches, again, that have been split over this idea of baptism. Is, is, it, is it possible for us to say that there's only one baptism that exists? Well, that's not a trick question. That's what Paul says. So, yes, we can say there's only one baptism that exists. Well, what is that baptism? Well, you already see it. We're one in baptism into Christ. Paul here is not, is not talking about the, the mode the method, the style of baptism. He's not talking about the timing of baptism. He's talking about whenever we trust in Jesus Christ, we're baptized into one body. Again, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. Now hear me. I'm Southern Baptist. I do believe that there is a a way in Scripture that's laid out that baptism ought to be observed. But I'm not here today to, to tell you just what I believe. Because again, secondary issue. Ultimately, our baptism though, as we're placed under the water and then raised up out of the water, is a picture of the inward change that's already happened in us. That's a picture of this one baptism of the Holy Spirit that Paul is writing about here. So, we're together, one in baptism. Finally, he says that we're together, united under one God and Father of all. Ultimately, who is over all and through all and in all. Think about this. When it's talking about here, we're united under a Father of all. It is the one true God, the God who spoke all of the world into existence. When you and I trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment, we're adopted into the family of God. And become co-heirs with Jesus. We're all the same. When it comes to the family of God, we all are the same. I mentioned earlier that my wife and I, we adopted our fourth son. And, and I actually had someone recently asking me, how, how, how do you love a child that you adopt? And, and, I, and I know what they were getting at. I wasn't offended. You know, I, I, I know exactly what they mean. But, but in my mind, I'm thinking... He's my son. I, I love him like my other three children. 
There's, there's absolutely no difference. In fact, when we signed the papers with the state of Louisiana, we had to say there, that we would treat him no differently. He literally becomes a, an heir just like my other three children. There's no difference. That's the picture of the gospel. When you and I trust in Jesus, at that moment, we're grafted into, we're adopted in the family of God. We are actually co-heirs with Jesus himself. Church, don't rush past this. When Paul writes to the church, he says, listen, we, we've, we've got to be united. Instead of focusing on what divides us or what possibly might divide us, we should remember what unites us. We, we should, as we've seen here, we should be a people who live united through our divine calling. We should be a people who live united in our theological oneness. Warren Wiersbe, pastor and commentator, said this, Unity is not uniformity. Unity comes from within and is a spiritual grace. While uniformity is the result of pressure from without. Whenever Pastor Dustin asked me to come and share to begin this series, we were talking. I, I know that Pastor Dustin, Pastor Brick, their, their mindset is not to pressure you into doing something. That's, that's not why I'm here today. I'm here just to deliver to you the word of God. Spoken by God himself. Which says... You've experienced all of these wonderful things being a part of the family of God. You've been adopted. You've been loved. You've been received. You have one spirit. You are united together. All of these benefits, you've, you've got it. So now what are you going to do with it? We're not here to pressure you. Paul's not here to pressure you. This word is here to hold us accountable. Being a people who are united together for the purpose of, of evangelizing loss and edifying the church. Over the next few weeks, you're going to talk about spiritual gifts. You're going to talk about different aspects of your giftedness, your uniqueness. My prayer is that you'll discover, if you haven't yet, that you will truly discover what it means to be a part of the family of God. And what it means to be a part of the body, of the local body of Christ. So that right here at Vintage... Being a church focused on one purpose, being a church that's a part of, of God's work, making an, an eternal impact that you will commit yourselves to be a people united together to reach the neighborhoods right here, to reach New Orleans, and ultimately to reach out to the nations. Because that's the purpose for which we've been saved. That's the very purpose for which we've been saved. Church. Here's the challenge. It's time to be selfless. It's time to stop thinking of ourselves. It's time to put others first. It's time to be humble. It's time to be meek. Not weak, meek. Self-controlled strength. It's, it's time to be reminded that we have a lot of unique and a lot of differences, uniqueness, a lot of differences, but, but we're actually united together in one theological truth. And we come together, come together for one purpose. That's to live our lives for the glory of God. Now, all that we think, all that we say, all that we do. And we begin right here in the local body of Christ. Would you pray with me? 
want to give you an opportunity to do some business with the Lord this morning. I mentioned earlier we would give you an opportunity. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've heard the truth of the gospel. I know this passage is written more to the church, but you've heard the truth that Jesus loved you enough. He was willing to die on the cross for your sins, but you must believe that. You must trust in that. Pastor Briggs is going to lead us in a moment. Maybe you'd just like to come up to him in this time of invitation, or maybe even after the service. Just take one of the pastors by the hand and ask him, how do I become a believer in Jesus? For the rest of us, though, those who've already made that decision, what are you willing to do now? What are you willing to do now to show the body of Christ and the world around us that we are a united people? We, 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 shouldn't, we shouldn't expect the, the world to look different. I mean, the world, the world is filled with racists. The world is filled with hatred. The world is filled with bitterness. And we should expect that. They're the world. But as the church, we should look radically different. How are you going to prove you're radically different? How are you going to serve? Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. Lord, I pray. Right now, if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted you, that today would be the day they surrender their lives to you. Lord, for we who are the believers here, I pray that you would just remind us that we are a united people. We have a divine calling on our lives to look radically different, to be a people different from the world so that the world will notice. But Lord, also, honestly, this is the church. Our fellow believers will notice. But then, Lord, we wouldn't stop there, that we would be a people united by theological oneness. Lord, we would believe the truth of the gospel. We would understand the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We would understand how you have gifted us uniquely, not, not to be selfish hogs of our own giftedness, but that we would be stewards. We would use those gifts, use our talents, our monies, our energies. Lord, our abilities, use them for your glory in building up the church. Lord, challenge us now. And again, Lord, may we be a people who look radically different, proving the unity that you have placed in us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.